For years, I just dreaded going to the dentist. But at Advanced Dentistry, I don't have to. First and foremost, they want you to feel comfortable when you walk in. Like, you'll feel it. Whereas in the past, I might have gone into the dentist and thinking, I might feel some pain at some point. But with IV sedation, it can be something that you don't dread. If you've been avoiding the dentist because of fear, worry, or just not wanting to be judged, you're not alone. Visit NoFearDentist.com to learn how IV sedation can change your life. Hey, this is Duran. Welcome to Posse of the People. Happy New Year! It's 2022. Lord, it feels like we we earned this because 2020, 2021 were just endless. So shout out to 2022. You made it. I made it. We made it. Here we go. And welcome to another episode of Pod Save the People. This week, it's me, Kaya, Miles, and DR talking about all the news that you don't know from the past week. And then I get the honor to sit down with Professor Maisha Cherry to discuss her new book, The Case for Rage, Why Anger is Essential to Anti-Racist Struggle. I've known Maisha for a long time, and it was an honor to talk about her book, to learn from her, and to be able to share with you all the things that I learned in real time. The advice this week actually comes from Miles, and you will hear it when we get to the news, and I just listen up. Family, happy new year. Welcome to the kickoff episode of Pod Save the People in 2022. I'm DR Ballinger. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at DR Ballinger. My name is Miles E. Johnson, and on Twitter and Instagram, I'm at Pharaoh Rapture today, right now. I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm Kaya Henderson, at Henderson Kaya on Twitter. And this is Duray at DIY on Twitter. So, we are actually taping this episode in 2021, but it will air in 2022. So, I am... Jumping into future Diara, which would have, she would have had two weeks of vacation, no clients bugging her, not hearing from people asking for things. I don't care who they are, movement related or not, I will have silence, silence, silence for two weeks. So I think jumping into that future Diara, feeling so refreshed, feeling so charged, I'm excited about 2022. Also manifesting that this increase in cases in COVID. Is, is no more in New York City, and we're back to regular COVID <laughs> numbers. Um, <laughs> just usual pandemic numbers, you know, nothing too wild. But, you know, also hoping that the Senate passed Build Back Better miraculously or one of the numerous voting rights bills that they had the, that they have to the end of the year to pass. So also manifesting that we had some legislative change in this country um, as of January, whenever this is on the air. So excited about 2022, trying to manifest all the positivity I can muster and looking forward to more conversations with these fine, incredible human beings on this podcast. What y'all got? I am, you know what? I was meditating on my mother yesterday because every every now and again, I just think about like, wow, I really lucked out. I have a really great mom. And I will be, when this airs, I'll be about two months out of being the same age that my mother was when she had me. She had me at 31. And, you know, with the rising COVID cases and, you know, all the things happened on the street. And I live in New York. I, I 
a rat tried to fight me and I just said, here's my groceries. And something, <laughs> there's a new type of craziness every single day on, um, in, in my life. And what I've noticed by observing my mother and reflecting on my mother is how I'm ready. So I think that I can't really control whatever the world decides to hand me, but I do, I can control my readiness and my preparedness because I observe my mother. And I can also observe that there's a certain type of despair or um, cynicism that I just don't have the right to because my mother paid that for me. She met a certain type of despair and cynicism because of the things that were happening in her life. And I just am able to live on a platform of of hope at the bare minimum because of what I've seen her do. And I'm just going to be a good person. I'm going to be ready for whatever happens. And if the world gets colder and harder, I'm going to get softer and warmer. And um, and I am going to fly. I'm going to fly. Now, I might swoop yes. down. I'm, I'm going to fly a little bit more <laughs> like a vulture. I'm, I'm not just flying high all the time. I might swoop down and play and play with some rats and some, and some carcasses. <laughs> But 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 I'm gonna go back in the air when I'm done. Oh, fly, Robin, fly. We should call this episode. This episode should be called "I'm Ready." That's a good 2022 yes. episode title. Yes. I'm ready in 2022 for everything that is coming our way. Um, I believe you have to speak these things into existence, and so I am speaking love, 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 love. In 2022, I am seeking bridge. I'm I'm speaking bridge building in 2022. I'm speaking rest in 2022, especially for my friend DeRay, who has terrible <laughs> sleep numbers on his aura ring. We need to fix that, bro. Sleep, it is real. Day one, day um, one. <laughs> um, I'm I am speaking. I'm speaking life. I am um, coming into 2022 with hopeful expectation of good things to happen. And um, I might be up there flying with Miles. Yeah. Maybe not as high, but I'm going to fly. <laughs> <laughs> um, my 2021 was, it was God was in, God is in control. That was like the message. It was like, okay, DeRay, like this not surrender and surrender is not weakness. God is in control. I think that in 2022, uh, I want to believe it'll be a trust myself a little bit more to like listen when the things are moving and like lean into that. Also, I appreciate that I, for the first time in my life, actually feel grounded. Like I feel like two feet on the ground, 10 toes down, and I want to carry that into the new year and also use that as a way to like use that groundedness to do all the things that are in my head, to put them out in the world, to like build the crazy thing, to like make the magic and the movement, to free all the systems. Like that's what I want to do. And I, uh, I hope that that's what we can do together. And like just being honest, I'm telling you, I didn't realize being honest was so hard for people, but it really does. When you ain't got a lot, it opens up a whole lot of capacity to do other good things. And I want to carry that into um, 2022, but I will echo you Miles, I want to be ready. Ready, ready, and ready in 2022. So I have a really good... Well, my, my news today is um, the passing of Bell Hooks. I just knew that we couldn't... I, I couldn't move on. This podcast couldn't move on without talking about the intellectual and artistic and, and mystic giant that is Bell Hooks. I, I leave those last two on there because I think that's such a big dimension of her work. And I feel like sometimes... Um, Media and just how and just how we operate can flatten people's um, uh, minds. So I remember one of the 
more life-changing talks that I ever witnessed Bell Hooks do was with Gloria Steinem. And she talks to Gloria Steinem about her brother who was really having a hard time finding spirituality because all he knew was a white Jesus. And she goes into talking about how that is one of the reasons why she started practicing Buddhism and how come that's one of the reasons why she has these different colored Buddhas and deities of all kinds around her house because she feels like that her house is something needs to embrace her. And then she really talks about how it's so necessary for Black people, specifically Black children, to um, see Black deities. And yesterday, well, it wouldn't be yesterday, <laughs> a day, <laughs> um, I go and I see this, Black Buddha and this person, this Black person holding this Black Buddha and hands it to me. And it was one of the more jarring things that I've ever seen happen in a, in a really good way. And f- that kind of felt like a synchronistic moment that I had with at least my own higher self, knowing that Bell Hooks was okay and present. And I think that that is a really good definition of what Bell Hooks does and has done to all her readers is make her more political, global ideas and theory, personal, intimate, and something that happens to you with a stranger on the street. She made everybody investigate their world, their interiors, and find the political in it and made everybody um, investigate their politics and how they um, interface with the world and find the personal intimate with it. And that to me is the real work of love. Bell Hooks, was a, is, is just a giant. I knew that I was going to kind of get emotional because Bell Hooks made me feel like everything was possible um, as somebody who only had a high school diploma but wanted to write and I was self-educated. Um, she made it to the point, she made, she made it so I believed in myself and I ended up teaching at the new school where I witnessed her talk and I ended up being a professor there and I ended up writing for different publications all because I felt like Somebody like Bell Hooks, even through her literature, validated my experience. And I felt worthy to be intellectual. I felt worthy to think out loud. And I felt worthy to express myself in a way that a lot of people don't feel validated unless they have these other credentials. And that's the legacy of Bell Hooks. She said, if you are Black and you are born, you are worthy of expressing yourself. And and that's the legacy of love that she's led. And she will be dearly missed, but it almost feels inappropriate to... To wish she was still here as as somebody who wasn't a part of her personal family or friend circle, it feels inappropriate to wish that she was still here because she's literally mentored me to my future, mentored me to a, a more expansive future than what would um, be there for me just statistically. And um, I'm just forever grateful and forever impacted by Bell Hooks. My favorite Bell Hooks quote is this one. The classroom remains the most radical space of possibility in the academy. And it absolutely sums up for me how I think, why I've spent my life in education. And so it's one of my most favorite quotes. I am so appreciative of Bell Hooks for using her words and her gifts to empower us all. When I think about a life well lived, she comes to mind for sure because Through her conversation with us as a society, she has enabled so many things to happen, not just your career trajectory, Miles. She's allowed women to think, especially Black women, to think differently about who we are in the world. Um, She's forced us to, through how she identifies herself, 
to put person small and make ideas big. Um, she has challenged us to love in ways that we've never loved before. And, you know, once in a generation, people like her come along and um, I am just thankful. I really am thankful. And I think um, it was it's fitting to, as the year ended, to really reflect on some of the themes that she challenges us to think about, about education, about love, about racism, about <clears throat> the role of the academy, all of these things that are swirling right now in the world. Um, and so I just want to say thank you for bringing this and for giving us the opportunity to share how Bell Hooks impacted us. She, um, in fact, a mystic giant is, wow, um, it's a poetic description of who she has been in our lives. So thanks for that. I don't think, I know the episode is I'm ready, but I'm not ready for this, I think. And I think Bell Hooks is one of those incredible humans who, I think for so many of us who were, you know, in in academia, once we came upon her work, and that and that's really when, when I did, it changes you. Um, and I think, Miles, to your point, it, it, you know, it transforms what you envision for yourself. And I think she was that for so, so many of us. I majored in Black studies in college. And in reading everybody's work from, you know, all the old school folks from Manny Marable to Kimberly Crenshaw, et cetera, et cetera. There was something that was so compelling about Bell Hooks and how she saw you and how she helped you see yourself and your wounds um, and the need for love and the need for healing. So I think this one, this was, this is a hard one. And I, you know, and obviously she's left us with this legacy and all her incredible work. But I think just knowing that she was breathing on this earth certainly gave me comfort. So I think this one, you know, want to honor her and, and continue to, um, to celebrate her. But this one, um, this one was a big, a big loss that, yeah, wasn't that I, that I was not ready for. So we'll miss you, Belle. And we thank you. Um, and we'll continue to to uplift you. You know, I'll never forget reading Bell Hooks in, in college at, for the first time and being blown away. I remember the no footnotes. I was like, is this really academic? Is this really something in the academy? It's no footnotes. And it was like, that's the whole purpose. I'm like, oh, Bell, Bell got it. It was the first time that I felt smart. And like, uh, so that was one. The second thing, and Miles, this is actually what brought me to you, like knowing who you were outside of the children's book, was Bell Hooks was the first writer that ever made me believe that culture was a site of interrogation. Before Bell Hooks' work, I remember reading her work on soul food, and, and I was like, you can critically think about like TV shows and songs and movie covers and magazines. Like, I just didn't even know that was a thing because in the Academy, the way I was brought up, it was like those were sort of like cultural productions. And then there was there was like real theory and they were two very different worlds. And then Bell was like, oh, no, 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 no. We only live in one world and we have the right to talk about every every part of that world. And our critique is rooted in our love. And the third is that if you are listening and if you have not read Feminism is for Everybody, you should. Because when people say feminism, I'm like, what you mean? What you mean? I literally, right before we started recording, 
we're, we're putting together a, a reading group in 2022 and I was telling one of the people, like, just read feminism for everybody. You don't even know what feminism is. You're going to learn anything. Uh, but but what Bell pushed me on in that essay that I will never forget is she she talks about, so much of our writing is about kids and, and the way we treat young people and the way we treat children and how uh, patriarchy is not, this idea that patriarchy is genderless. But she says, you know, if you saw a man take two fingers and put uh, a woman's flesh between those two fingers and twist it to make a point or to change her behavior, you would so clearly understand that as abuse. And then she says, when a mother does that to a child, why do we not understand that as abuse too? And I'm like, that's the whole, I'm like, go ahead, Belle, go ahead, preach, preach, and preach. Uh, so I just think about how much she challenged all of us. And this is really the last thing. And she did it before it was cool. She was talking about white male capitalist patriarchy when people were like, girl, like, no. People were like, this is too much. I remember being in college being like, okay, here comes the phrase one more time. And it's like, Belle got it before. Like, now what Belle said that long ago is like, those are becoming mainstream thoughts. People are like, oh, yes. But she was holding the line and she chose not to do it at Yale and not to do it. She chose to do it in other places because that was her choice. So- Shout out to Bell. Don't go anywhere. More Pod Save the People is coming. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell y'all, they sent me the Factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like, I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Stay connected this winter with this unbeatable deal from BreezeLine. Get reliable, fiber-powered internet for just $19.99 per month with all-in pricing for two years. But that's not all. Your first month is on us. This deal gets better with a free modem and installation along with free Wi-Fi your way whole home coverage. Safeguard your network from cyber threats to keep all your devices connected and secured with this amazing offer. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires March 3rd, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com.
Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, whew, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, and we keep them bottled up. It can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot people. So y'all, my news today is from USA Today. And y'all probably saw this on Twitter because it, it went went viral. But I just wanted to bring it back up at the on the pod, particularly, you know, we I just feel like we talked so much this, you know, in the past year around um health disparities and inequities, um, particularly particularly in communities of color, and really seeing all of that come to light because of COVID. Um, but you know, understanding that part of the reason for that is kind of the dehumanization of folks of color. And partly it's because people who are in medical school don't see folks of color illustrated in their medical book, in their medical books. So evidently less than 5% of images in most textbooks show dark skin. Um, And so researchers found this in a 2018 study. Um, And so this article is about two young Black folks who decided to take this matter into their own hands and to start illustrating folks of color so that those images can be used in medical textbooks. One is a Nigerian medical student and illustrator, Chidabere Ibe, and he wants to draw more attention to efforts of artists by color to bring diversity to these types of drawing because he really believes that it does impact patient care. He's a soon-to-be student at the the Kiev Medical University in Ukraine. Um, And he became interested in medical illustration back in July, 2020, and spent a year teaching himself how to draw anatomy. And this was, again, inspired by him noticing the lack of diversity in the images he was studying. There's another uh, young woman, Hillary Wilson, who's a 27-year-old medical illustrator, and she's based in Durham, North Carolina, She was studying biology and planning to go to medical school when she first learned of medical illustration as a potential career. And so she decided to combine her love of art and science. Um, And she, you know, wants to do this because she believes that, you know, she doesn't want white skin to be seen as the default when it comes to medical illustrations. So I don't know, I just thought this was so interesting and something that I hadn't really thought of. And I think, you know, interesting to get, will be interesting to get Kai and DeRay's perspectives on this as educators, because it is something that I think unless you're in that field, you wouldn't really have, you know, you wouldn't really have noticed. So I think, you know, I don't know. I just was inspired by these, these, these two individuals to first be able to be thoughtful enough to identify the problem and then to really commit themselves to learning how to illustrate these complicated images so that they can change uh, imagery in medical textbooks. One of the things that was fascinating about this to me is um, that the American Medical Illustrators Association has 800 people in it. That's not a lot of people. That means that with a 
surge of colorful medical illustrators, we could change the whole entire game, right? And so as an educator, I was thinking, hmm, how much do medical illustrators make? What, how do I get my kids who are very interested in art and also interested in science to think about that? Like, there are just these careers that we don't know about. And in the same way that you can't see it if you can't be it in terms of patients and, and the illustrations in the medical field, we need to lift up this um, career opportunity for our young people. Because my guess is, and I haven't done the research yet, um, but I'll take a look. My guess is they probably make pretty decent money. And there are lots of amazing young people of color who can draw and for whom having the opportunity to impact um, Black health or health for people of color would be a huge um, area of interest. And so this is making me think, it's making me do a little bit more research, um, and it's making me think I need to call my people who do career education and uh, make sure they understand that this is an option for folks. You know, I'll say um, this made me think about when I used to teach math and I never played golf, but almost all of the math word problems were par problems. I don't know about golf. The kids didn't know nothing about golf. I'm like, skip it, skip it. Hope golf not on the state exam. Skip it. Don't know. Literally. I was like, and am I learning? Am I going to learn all of golf so y'all can do this one word problem? I'm not. Like, we got too much to do. <laughs> but I think you're right, DR, that like, you know, this was for me one of those things that I took for granted. Like, I literally didn't even, I didn't even, like, all the babies have always been white. Didn't even think about it. I was like, okay. So when I saw the black baby, it actually was odd to me. I remember seeing it on Twitter being like, why the baby black? I'm like, whew, DeRay, see, you, they got you. They got you, right? And it also reminded me that, like, almost every first that's happening in the 2020s for Black people is damning. And like not, like it is celebratory in the sense that like, you know, finally, but it's damning in the sense that it took this long, you know? The first thing I thought about listening to you uh, speak the news when I was reading it was how I can't wait for there to be a querying of this too. I think that we're definitely in an era where there are going to be so many different types of bodies, gender expressions um, that are being shown. And I think that getting doctors used to seeing different types of bo bodies is, is just imperative. And I think that that will also help not just the queer bodies that you see, but then also help the cis bodies that you see, because I do believe part of the misogynoir that um, Black women experience in the medical industry is because of uh, seeing certain things as um, binary masculine and these things as binary feminine. And then when those things are actually being queered in front of you in a medical office, even through a cis hetero, a cis het person's body, then violence happens, a, a, a mystery of like, do that person, does that person feel pain happens? All these different things um, are born from that. So um, that was the first thing that came to me where I'm like, oh, I know people who are non-binary, who are not doing these kind of like trans-binary medical shifts that the media has made possible who are still taking estrogen. I know people who are maybe doing things like um, taking out, uh, you know, breasts, but still keeping other parts and doing all types of things that are, uh, with, with, with their bodies. Um, that I think need to be normalized before you get in front of the patient because I don't want to hear my doctor saying, ooh, 
or ah, or <laughs> I, I don't want my doctor being surprised about nothing that's going on over here. I don't. That's not something you want to hear from a doctor. <laughs> like, <laughs> my news this week is about the Proud Boys. You know, the people who uh, helped start the January 6th insurrection, um, the far-right nationalist group that has been menacing our politics. I brought this to the podcast because I think that it is a really interesting turn of events. Um, Strategy shift is what it is, and that is that since since the January 6th insurrection, the Proud Boys have actually dissolved their national leadership um, and they have taken a decentralized approach where they are focusing um, more on local chapters to expand their membership by taking on local causes. They are dealing with mask mandates and anti-vaccine conversations and whatnot. And this is all a humongous strategy play to get more members in time to influence next year's midterm elections. What? Yes, friends, they are showing up at school board meetings. They are showing up at local health board meetings. They are showing up in Beloit, Wisconsin and in Hanover, North Carolina. They are showing up at small town council gatherings, questions and answer sessions by health departments that are trying to Um, inform people about vaccines and whatnot, um, and their membership is growing in small towns and counties. They show up at these school board meetings and these small town gatherings as the muscle, and their goal is to intimidate the other side and attract new members with a show of force, and it is working. In fact, they will come into your school board meeting and just stand in the back and cheer on the people who are espousing their values or stand outside and intimidate people. And this is happening in small towns and counties all over the United States, and membership is growing. I bring this to the pod because it's really important for us to understand what is going on on the far right. It's not just the Proud Boys that are doing this. Apparently, a lot of the far right nationalist groups have gone dark at the national level, Um, in part because of pressure from federal uh, officials who are investigating them. In fact, our our attorney general here in the the District of Columbia, Carl Racine, just filed a lawsuit against the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers for the damage that they did um, here in Washington on January the 6th. And so they are going dark nationally and showing up locally in mighty, mighty numbers. In fact, um, Telegram, which is the far-right sort of message board that um, they use. The national channel is pretty much inactive, but there are local channels that are cropping up, um, Proud Boy local channels that are cropping up all over the place. And I bring this because I think that they're playing a long game, friends. They are strategically redeploying and recruiting to uh, affect the midterm elections. And I don't know what other people are doing, but I think that the far right has traditionally played a long game. If you look at the rise of the right over the last 40 years, it starts with school boards. Um, they, The conservatives decided that they were going to infiltrate school boards and pushed right up into the White House um, over time. That's why we have all of these federal judges that 
um, your former president appointed. It is why the conservatives have been so successful. And um, the progressives need to play this long game. <laughs> I, I don't even know. I, I'm, I am just astounded at how this little band of menacing punks, frankly, are strategic enough to think about how to influence the election. They don't care that Mr. Trump has disavowed them. Um, they don't care that nobody is paying attention. While nobody is paying attention, they are doing their work and they're doing it intentionally. And so um, I want people to show up to their school board meetings. I want them to show up to their local town council meetings. These are things that we take for granted, um, but this is where the fight is. The fight is not you know, whatever, whenever the midterm elections are, the fight is now. And so people need to pay attention to local politics um, because that's the play. So I know that it's like an ideological term, like far right, right? But I think that sometimes people <laughs> think in their head it's actually far away. It's very, it's, it's, it's very, 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 very close. Um, I was mostly raised in Georgia, Atlanta, Georgia, um, in in rural um, uh well, suburban places around um, the Atlanta, Georgia um, area, and I knew how close the far right was, so it wasn't actually that that far. And one thing that I was able to observe too, because I was actually in middle school, oh, not this memory child, I was actually in middle school when they changed the Confederate flag to the um, flag uh, that that Georgia has now, and that was a big deal in our middle school. There were Oh, there was a, there was upset students and administrators, and that was the first time that I felt truly unsafe because of racial reasons in um in that, during that time in in middle school. And what I've come to learn in in the lesson that keeps on getting repeated, and in what I keep on seeing seeing is that these people are legacy thinkers. These people are people who are very much okay with not necessarily seeing the results of what they what they want but they work like they will see it tomorrow that is a interesting combination when somebody's okay to die without seeing it where they'll work that hard but they work in the and they and they and but they also work like everything that we're that we're working for and fighting for can happen tomorrow and i think that a lot of times progressives don't think like that and i think also progressives tend to neglect the people who feel really disenfranchised. And I'm not just talking about poor white people, but I feel like people want to pretend like people who are on the far left are not close to them too. There are people who have, there are people who have far left theory who are very close to you too, who the far left, who, um, excuse me, progressives just won't sit down with, who won't, who won't talk to. And I just think that we're going to continue to see this cycle because this is literally the cycle that change, you know, people who are doing like, uh, Poor white people into people who are who are patrolling slaves. This is the same type of empowerment, and I see you that they were doing since then, and this is this in, in the same thing that's happening now. And I wish there was an intervention um, that was less about stopping them and more about empowering the people who are being victimized. I just never see that happen for long enough that it matters when it comes to what the left is doing. Yeah, that's right. I think that we. I'm worried that people don't have enough to fight for on our side and fighting against the bad just is actually just not as much as it doesn't motivate the non MSNBC viewers as much as people thought it would at some point. And I'll tell you, I'm in communities all the time talking about the police or the latest thing the police are using da, 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 and you know, all the, you should vote people and of which we were like at a point people are going to ask us, what did they vote for? And 
saying the infrastructure bill is just not good enough. Like people don't even know what that means, right? Even the conversation about Build Back Better, there are probably four people who are not like politicos who can explain what Build Back Better is. Like we know we about to lose it to Mansion, but like people don't even know what's in it. And I just worry so much, Miles, to your point that if we don't figure out how to rally our people to be energized and to fight and da-da-da-da, then we will lose it to the wild white supremacists who are organized and ready. And their task is different, right? They are trying to take us back to a time that we've already survived. We're trying to build a better future. That is a hard, like we we are doing future work that is like generative and they are not. So we do have different tasks. But the storytelling to people in real living rooms about why you fight and what it means and what's at stake and what doesn't work and what does, we got to ramp that up at the national level. I think that people are doing it really good in, in communities, but I think that like the national narratives, we are losing. The Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers are both being sued by the D.C. Attorney General, and they're being sued under the Ku Klux Klan Act because basically that is... Evidently, the only law in the books where these folks can be held civil, liable civilly for what happened on January 6th. I guess what I have to wrap my mind around, and I think, Miles, you touched on this in terms of like these folks and their legacy, is that if we, <laughs> if we can connect them so closely with the KKK that we have to use a law from 1871 that was targeted at the KKK that is now targeted at these folks. What are we talking like what are we talking about everybody? Like that it's just so wild to me that that we are that we are still here. And yet and Dre, I hear you loud and clear about like rallying the masses and like we need to have better messaging and all of that, but I just feel like as a country we haven't moved <laughs> beyond having terrorist organizations that wreak violence against black people and get and and get a, and get away with it right cuz Kyle Rittenhouse is also like a, a result an outcome of the proud boys of the oath keepers and he is not guilty so i think it's just this like larger reckoning around like are we just a racist ass country and what does that mean and where are we where are we going to be? Because I just, I don't, yes, it's a, it's a question around like, we need better messaging. We need, maybe we need better organizing from kind of our, our democratic institutions. They need to work better. But I think it's also just like, things are solved with Build Back Better because of the filibuster, which is meant to hold back civil rights legislation. It's like, this is racist, all of this. So I'll stop my rant, but I think that's where my mind goes. So I'm going to start the year off with just grounding us in the horrors that we need to fight against <laughs> as we talk about all the other stuff. Uh, this is about D.C. DC uh, Police Department. The, it is published in Reveal News. Uh, it talks about the D.C. accountability process, and the title is D.C. Police Tried to fire 24 current officers for criminal offenses. A powerful panel blocked nearly everyone that documents show. So uh, when you get disciplined in the D.C. Police Department, it goes to a panel called the Adverse Action Panel. It is three 
police officers. And they are the ultimate decision makers around termination and, and intense consequences. They have the power to vacate the consequence or to uh, just lessen it. And in 21 of the 24 cases where the department tried to terminate somebody, the panel reduced their sentence to a suspension or an acquittal. And it's a range of cases. It's like there was a whole set of domestic abuse cases. There are all these cases where this panel decided not to not to take action. So I'll let the other people talk about it. I'm sure people will sort of dig into that at some point. But what I wanted to say is that it's so interesting because a lot of people would be like, okay, you get a good mayor. Got it. You get a good police chief. Cool. Uh, and this is like while we're on the path to ab- abolition, but like still we got to deal with what we got today. But people don't even know about these panels. And the adverse action panel is something that like nobody, you're like, why didn't that person get fired? They're like, well, the police chief said it wasn't even the police chief on this case. And what's interesting is that these are in cities all across the country. Baltimore has a a similar, it's three police officers. Uh, LA has arguably one of the worst in the country. In LA, there's what's called the Board of Rights. And in LA, when you get disciplined, if you want to get, if, if the police department wants to terminate you, it goes before the Board of Rights. There's a panel that's all police, and there's another version that you can choose that's some civilians and mostly police. And they are not on our side on most of these issues. But more importantly, what is fascinating about the, the Board of Rights in LA is that their decisions are secret. And just like in DC, the rationale for the decisions, if the news hadn't gotten these some way, we would never know is that not only do they have absolute disciplinary power, but how they reach the conclusion, secret. What the conclusion is, nobody knows. And it's really like a shadow, it's a shadow operation almost guaranteeing that like you will not know what's happening in your own city. So we, you know, we're out here trying to change the rules and change the policies and fighting it, da 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 And then there's like a little committee on the inside that's like, just kidding, just kidding, just kidding, just kidding. And the, I believe that the more and more if people understood this, they would be even better. I think that like these are the things that actually make the case for abolition even better. Because you're like, did all the things, got all that, and still the police created a structure to bypass all of the things that you put into place. So I wanted to bring it here to hear what y'all had to say. This was fascinating to me in part because I live in Washington, D.C., and because the one of the people on the gang of three, which is what I'm going to call the adverse <laughs> adverse action panel, um, is now our current police chief. And so or, um, if when you are not the police chief, you are protecting police this way, um, Chief Conti, do we, can we expect you to be the one to clean this up? I don't think so. So, um, yeah, like, you know, you hear the thing about the police not being able to police themselves. Clearly, this is another example of that. What was one of the things that I loved about this is they name names. They are like, Joe Smith did this and Bob, you know, so-and-so did that. And that was fascinating to me. But even more fascinating is how they found this out. There was a ransomware attack on a DC police and they hacked 250 gigabytes of police data and uh, that somebody else took the data and decoded it and blah, 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 it and all of this jazz. And they found out all of this information. And um, they found out other information about the police as well. Um, it says, Reveal found the misconduct investigations and disciplinary decisions buried in tens of thousands of records that included a controversial gang database, intelligent briefs on right-wing activists, and emails describing the conduct of a specialized police unit trying to suppress robberies. And so while uh, we always think that hacks and ransomware attacks are terrible. Um, 
They are, in fact, how we sometimes find out what's really going on in the world. I thought this was um, wildly disturbing. Um, I thought it was also pretty um, interesting that nobody wants to comment. The police force doesn't, you don't have a statement to say about this at all. Like, what's up with that? We pay your, we, the taxpayers, pay your salaries and this is this is why, you know, investigative journalism is super important because if it wasn't for Reveal and WAMU, um, we would not be having this conversation. I think it is a very different conversation um, to be having with the police department in Washington, D.C. Didn't we just, oh yeah, I did a thing a couple weeks ago about the Henny that they were selling. Was it Henny? <laughs> Jack Daniels. <laughs> Jack Daniels. <laughs> Oh Lord, mm. right. It's it's so it's so. Kismet, that this is your news for this week because I was just talking to a dear friend of mine who did get a DUI and is now going through her weeks of classes um, because you know one of the things with with um, with the sentencing around DUIs you have to go to these classes where you know they talk to you about why it's bad to drive under the influence and talk you know and also. Um, you know, have all of these really awful, compelling stories about people who have lost their loved ones because of DUIs. With that said, there's a group of them that get together. They're in this class and it comes out that one of the women in the class, um, the, the police officer that arrested her and a few others in the class was following, it's, it's always following her because he said to her, like literally followed her, her one, home one day and said to her, I know that you, I know that you are violating one of your conditions, right? So when you have a DUI, you can only, you know, go to the grocery store or pick your kids up or travel for work, et cetera. Um, and he said, I know you're in violation. And she said, no, I'm not. Here's what I was doing, et cetera, et cetera. Um, all that to say, he follows her all the time. And so this poor woman, because we're, where do you go to complain about that? What 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 will happen if anything? So I don't know. I just bring that story up because I, you know, I think again when we talk about this, it's like it's actually these things are happening to people in their lives, and their lives are being so traumatically impacted by these experiences with these, you know, out of pocket police officers. So. And this is a case of her being followed, but in the cases, this is like talking about women being assaulted and all these other things. It's just, it's, it is wild. It is wild. And, you know, thank goodness for the advocacy groups that we have so that we can start to learn more about what we don't know and how to fix it. I do want to like file this underneath like whiteness is, is, is gangster. Like it's, it's a, it's a, it's a violent gangster paralleled thing that we're working with. <laughs> and and I think the more we really, like, what just one of the things that just really sat on me um, oh, last year was that we have, like, part of the work is to really see the violence and the organized crime of it all as organized crime and as, and, and, and not separate these things. And I think sometimes we can get so um, caught up in, well, you're supposed to be like this and, you know, this nation's not supposed to be racist or police are supposed to act like this and that we can just 
not see it for what it is, which is um, organized crime um, with elections. <laughs> and, I th- and I think the more you, the more we can get the surprise out the way, the more we can get certain types of um, emotional reactions out the way when we don't ever expect anything from gangsters but gangster activities, you know? Um, but that's it. That's all I got for that. Now, Professor Maisha Cherry, I have known her since I was uh, so young and I was a teenager when we first met in Baltimore working for a nonprofit. She was our boss, our manager, and I pop up and, you know, I'm now an activist doing work across the country and she's a professor. And I saw the book, I'm like, gotta read the book. And then it was like, would you please come on the podcast? And you know, she is really dope because her her work really pushed me to think about the nuances of anger and what anger looks like and the gradations of anger and just sort of teasing it out, both from a philosophical standpoint, but but more importantly from a standpoint that like you and I both have lived and we understand and like she gives it language. And she sort of talks about how the emotion can be intense and destructive, but also the transformative power of anger, the the motivating force that anger can be, especially in the work of justice. So without further ado, please listen to this conversation between me and Professor Maisha Cherry. I learned so, so much. Here we go. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. Ready for an amazing deal? BreezeLine's fiber-powered internet, starting at $19.99 per month, offers the reliability you deserve and security you can trust. Whether you're streaming, gaming, or working from home, we've got all your needs covered with speeds up to 1 gig and our two-year price lock guarantee. This deal gets even better with two free months of internet, free equipment, and free Wi-Fi your way to protect against cyber threats. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires July 8, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. Sofas, recliners, love seats, everything is better in leather. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley, where bold meets durable. And wait a minute, who's been finger painting on the couch again? That's okay, leather is easy to clean. The new leather collection at Ashley is built with the durability you need for the whole family. Yes, pets too. Luxury is meant to be livable. Shop chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com and this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidates committee. Dr. Cherry, Professor Cherry, Maisha Cherry, it is so good and an honor to have you on the podcast today. It's good to chat with you. I'm looking forward to it. So listeners, I've known uh, Maisha since I was, I don't know, 14 or 15, way back when in Baltimore. And uh, it is so, it's such, it's such a full circle moment to have one of your first mentors 
and one of your first managers um, be somebody who is also pushing public thought around important issues around justice. So good to be here. Uh, can you can you start by telling us like what was your journey after I after we knew each other so well? Like what what was next for you? Like how did you right. you went to the academy? You writing books? Like what? Tell me. Because we met, we were, uh, I guess you could say we were, we were working at a, a nonprofit in Baltimore. i just leave it at that. And you were still in high school, and I was getting a master's degree. So I think I had just, I was just wrapping up my master's degree at Howard University. And at the time, um, when I was at Howard, I wasn't that persuaded to go full bore into academia. I thought it was quite detached from what I was doing when I wasn't in academia. Um, so after we worked together, I continued to do the nonprofit profit sector for, for another, I don't want to, you know, give my, give my age away, for another few years, let's just put it like that, um, working in different, different aspects of, of nonprofit. And then the academy just was just calling me because in addition to working in nonprofit, I was still adjuncting on the weekend. And so I was still, you know, engaging, working with the community, but also going into classrooms, still engaging philosophically with students. And it just got to the point after years and after years after years, my heart was just pulled into the other direction. And one of the things that I basically said to myself is like, if I'm going to make the decision to go back into the academy, I need to make sure that I have both feet, or we might say both feet on the inside and the outside, right? So one of the things that I was intentional about doing is I'm going to leave this nonprofit world behind, but not really, right? So the issues that I talk about, um, the book that I just came out with is very much tied to a lot of issues that's on, that's on the ground because that's how I basically merged, merged the two. But I went off and got my PhD, um, did some fellowships for a couple of years, and now I'm at the University of California, Riverside, as an assistant professor of philosophy, trying to merge the academia aspect of, of myself, but also still that communal aspect that's still very much, very much there. How you got to rage and how did you pick your... How did you pick your field of academic study? Like, if you didn't do this, what would you have? Like, if there was, if you were like, okay, the academy's calling me. If you didn't choose this field of study, what would you have chosen? Or was it this or bust? Or did you, like, I don't know. What was that journey? Yeah, in some ways, I think, I think, I mean, for me, and I think for a, whole, a lot of scholars, particularly scholars of color and women, the topic kind of chooses you, right? So, so for me, I mean, I, when, I was, when I was an undergrad at Northern State, I was a philosophy major. Um, and I was a religious studies minor and in graduate school at, that I was referring to, I was at Howard University, so I was doing a theology degree. And so I was very much, um, just as a child, I, I had a philosophical, a philosophical mind. So the ways in which I thought about the world um, was very much philosophical. And I think a better way to, to, to say this is to say um, that the questions that I was interested in were very philosophical questions. Um, and so that mind just never really went away. And it wasn't until 2012 that anger, the topic of anger, kind of came into, into being. And, and, the, and the way that it came about was, I mean, you remember 2012, Trayvon Martin, Black Lives Matter. Everybody's angry. People trying to figure out what to do with their anger. People, in some ways, feel shame about their anger. And then you have pundits on television, um, basically tone policing, telling people not to be angry. And so that anger thing, I mean, it just, it just was like, whoa, what is, what is, this, what is this anger thing? <laughs> like, wh- why... Wh- why do I see it as a motivational force to get people to protest? And why do other people see it as, as, a, as a challenge or <laughs> as, as something that is bad? And, 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 and those two things were just something that intellectually I, was just, I, I wanted to make sense of. And so um, at the time I was adjuncting and still doing nonprofit work 
And I just started doing philosophical research. And I was like, you know what? This is it. This is it. I mean, these are the, the qu- kinds of questions that I'm interested in. And, um, and so uh, as a result of that, I ended up deciding to apply to PhD programs um, to go a little bit, a little bit deeper. Um, so the anger thing just came from the atmosphere. I mean, for me, the kind of topics that I'm interested in basically comes from the experience, the lived experience um, that I had in my own life and the things that I witnessed. And so at that moment, I was witnessing anger. And I just felt that there were misconceptions about anger. There were, uh, I guess you could say, a, demon, a demonizing of, of, of anger, and not necessarily anger, but the anger of particular folk. And I wanted to redeem anger. I wanted to redeem those kinds of folk um, and show that this is valuable. Um, so that, that, that's where the rabbit hole started. So for the, like the last nine years, it's something that I've been very, very interested in and have not just used philosophical literature, but, you know, I do Lord and, and a whole bunch of other resources in the black radical tradition to kind of help me make sense make sense of it. I remember, um, it's funny, you know, one of the reasons why I reached out to you when I even heard that you were writing this book or when you posted originally was because I remember being in the street in Ferguson and being really angry. And I remember feeling like, DeRay, you got to like move that anger around. Like you got to like, you know, anger like doesn't feel the work. And and I remember it. And and then I had this moment of being like, no, DeRay, like anger is normal and healthy and like, uh, make sure that anger is not the only emotion in the room, but like anger in the room is a good thing, right? Like, right. and I remember that moment of like that that the call for the lack of anger is actually like a dehumanizing call, and that I was participating in that and like didn't understand it. Right. And then I was like, oh, she writing a book about right. it. She writing right. a book about it. Teach me. <laughs> So uh, can we? So we don't have to talk through them all because people need to buy the book. But can we talk about? Um, what you do that I think is so interesting, and even the producer for the podcast, she was like, I didn't even know. Da-da-da-da. I learned this. Like we both had a moment about it. It's like the sort of the layers of the layers of anger and this idea that with love we 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 accept yeah. that there are gradations and flavors and textures. But with anger, it mm-hmm. is like one broad stroke. Mm-hmm. And you uh, you complicate that right. and like sort of tease it out. Can you walk us through sort of how you landed on the range of anger types, if that's what we'll call them? And then can you give us a little, right. uh, can you pick two of them uh, potentially and then like walk us through? Right, right, right. So, so I mean, you kind of set it up very nicely, right, in talking about love, right? So when we think about love. We think about love in this varieties, right? There's a, a variety of love that you can feel. Like the love that I have for my partner is not the kind of love that I got from my mama, right? <laughs> and like what makes for that difference? Well, it's directed, you know, the target, the love that is directed towards the feelings that come about, et cetera, the obligations that I have is quite, quite different, right? And we acknowledge that. Um, when we talk about other kinds of love, brotherly love, agape love, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I noticed that people weren't doing that with, with anger. And so the question is, why? <laughs> why, is, why is that the case? I don't know why that wasn't the case. But I felt that it needed to be the case that we need to stop paying anger as if it's one thing. Because I felt that as long as we continue to do that, um, the one picture that we seem to have of anger is that, I mean, in the book, I call it kind of like a Dr. Evil kind of thing. It's like this, this, this vicious thing that if you allow it to take over you, violence, revenge is going to ensue, so just get rid of it in general. And I just felt like that was, no, that's one kind of anger, just as there's one kind of love, but there's other varieties. So in the book, I kind of, you know, one of the things I've been thinking about throughout the last few years is, okay, so if there's no one anger, what is the thing that separates? or uh, 
separates one type of anger from, from another type. And, and then I was thinking, well, let's put it in the context of political injustice. Well, no, let's, let's make it a little narrow. In the context of racial injustice, what is the kind of anger that can arise? Well, it depends on what that anger is directed at. Right? Is it directed at the source of the problem? Right, such as racism, racist, et cetera, et cetera. Or is it directed at scapegoat? Right? So, so that's one thing that we need to kind of, kind of take into consideration. Who is that anger directed at? Another thing we need to take into consideration is what is that anger aiming to do? Right? So is it, is it aiming to, to make the world better? <laughs> is, it, is it aiming to eliminate certain kinds of people? Right? Right? Another thing that we can, we can think about in trying to differentiate the, the different kinds of anger is what is the kind of perspective that informs that particular anger? So in other words, what is the thinking of, a, of the mentality of someone that has that particular anger? Are they thinking about inclusion or are they thinking about exclusion? And once we begin to answer those questions, then we can begin to categorize angers in these particular types, and then we're able to assess which ones are actually unproductive, which ones are actually productive, which ones are actually good, which ones are actually bad. So, so let me just give you an example. Um, so one kind that I talk about in the book uh, that is a unproductive kind is what I call white rage. Not white rage, white rage, W-I-P-E. And I basically said the white rage where it aims at scapegoats. Um, one is not really motivated to actually do anything to change anything. So one is more uh, you know, apt to eliminate or hate their opponent or whatever the case may be. But you contrast that kind of anger, and, and an example of that would be what happened in January 6th at the Capitol, or what happened at Charlottesville, right? Um, and when you have that particular anger where you think it's all about you, or there can be no justice for us, only just for oneself, um, but it's going to lead you to engage in certain kinds of destructive actions. Contrast that with the kind of rage that I'm making a case for in the book, which is a, 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 a rage that's very much inspired by Ivy Lord's essay, The Uses of Anger. I call it Lordian Rage. It's a noble anti-racist anger. It is directed, contrasted with white rage, it's directed at racism. It aims um, to create a better world for us all. The perspective that influences it is that I'm not free until everybody is free. And if it has these particular features, it's going to lead the person to participate in a certain kind of action, such as to protest in the street, to engage in democratic kind of practices in order to, to, to incite change, as opposed to destroy and to lynch uh, politicians. And so that's how I, I, I try to you know, separate and say, hey, there's a case for rage. There's a certain kind of rage, though, that I'm making a case for. And once we realize that this rage is very different from the other kinds of rage, then we can hold it up and allow it to do the kind of work that we needed to do um, in the service of anti-racist struggle. Let me read a let me read a passage and can you can you walk us through it? One of the things that you write is while the demand for change calls for justice, rage, whose aim is change, advertises justice's worth. It says that justice is worth having, especially when we channel it into action to work toward that goal of justice. Can you can you like tease that out for us? What does that mean? Rage, this idea that rage advertises justice's worth. Ooh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so one of the things that we know about anger in general um, is that it's communicative, right? That, that when we are angry, it is communicating something to the world, right? So you imagine the last time that someone was angry at you. So you think about your, your partner was angry at you, 
I mean, for me, it only takes a look. I already know what time it is, right? The communication has already happened. I know I've done something wrong. I know it's probably time to have a conversation. Um, it's time for us to rectify some things. Um, it's communicative. And then you can imagine, you know, even in the story, you know, the anger, uh, a, a stranger was expressed anger towards you. The first thing you're going to wonder is what is wrong? Black Lives Matter protests. you got angry people in the street. I mean, that anger is communicating that something just ain't right, right? So we know that anger itself, is, 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 it, it communicates something. And one of the things that I want to say that the kind of anger that I'm suggesting, this anti-racist anger, this arises in the context of racial injustice, it is also doing the same kind of work that anger does on the interpersonal level. Um, but it, it, it's expanding it, right? It's basically saying, hey, the, the reason why the, the rage is there is because something ain't right. <laughs> something ain't racially right. Something ain't uh, right from an equality perspective, from a justice perspective. So it points out that, hey, something is missing here. Something is missing, right? So, so justice is, is missing. But it's not just making us aware that something is missing. It's also saying that what is missing is worth having, that's what it's calling my attention to. Mm, what is missing mm, is worth mm. having. What is missing is worth, worth having. Um, and, 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 and that's one of the things that I, I find valuable about, about, about anger, as much as we like to talk about, and I did talk about this in my third chapter of the book, the fourth chapter of the book, about how, you know, anger helps you to, like, want to go down to the protest and motivates you to do certain kinds of actions. But I think what it's missing for a lot of people is that anger has a tendency, before you even go to the protest, it's doing something already. It's communicating something. It's announcing something. And that's why I think people want to tone police it. That's why I think there are stereotypes of the angry black person, right? Calm this anger down so that you won't advertise justice more. Um, so that's one of the, the, the community features that I, that I like about anger and why I think uh, people don't like anger so much because of, of, of what it's doing in the world. There's something that I... Um... There's this one part early in the book that I was like, I want to ask her about this because it was one of the few things that I, that really, I was like, it was, I like, part of it was like, I didn't understand because I was like, I thought this was okay. And then you sort of push it. Okay. Is that you write, uh, you, you say, note that anger is transformative. Ang like you talk about, you're talking about lording anger and you say, note that this anger is transformative anger right, right. and not transition anger. Mm. And Transition right. anger to me sounded not bad. I don't know. Like, I think there are other worse angers and transition didn't seem so bad. And then, so I was like, well, what, like, right, can you help right. me sort of, um, can you help me sort of tease it out? And the second thing that I'll sort of say is that the other thing, there were two things in this section is that you then go on to say, I can't, let me find the citation, but you, you sort of say that like in an, oh, here we go. This is not to say that Lordian rage is by definition virtuous, and that if it goes wrong, we cannot criticize it since at such a failure point, it ceases to be Lordy and Rage. I like needed that a little, like, because it was virtuous by me, right? Like, uh, like I was reading and I'm like, this is the right rage. Mm -hmm. This is the rage we need. And then you were like, well, by definition, it's not virtuous. I'm like, but I thought the whole definition was that it was virtuous. So those two things, like transformative, not transition. So, yeah, this is good. No, this is good. This is good. So let me address the latter question first, right? So one of the things I want to say and this, this, this holds to like a, a commitment that I have about the emotions in general, is that we ought not to put too much confidence in the emotion itself because what happens is um, we'll begin to, to, to take agency away from the individual, right? So one of the things I, I want to say is that, you know, just because you have a virtuous kind of anger doesn't mean that that anger cannot go wrong, right? And it goes wrong because of us. <laughs> 
it can go wrong because of us. And that's why I end the book, um, given what I call kind of in the management tips, right? How can you keep this voting and rage virtuous, <laughs> right? Because as long as we as human beings have any kind of emotion, we, we can go awry. We can go awry. And therefore, we can make this virtuous thing go awry. And that's why I, I offer up the techniques. And I think the ways that it can go awry is that for me, one of the things I want to say is that the ways that it can go wrong is when you don't kind of activate the features or take advantage of the features it has, right? Um, and, so, and so I kind of offer suggestions on how to make sure that even with this anger that you have, um, that you continue to engage in certain kind of actions, certain kinds of not calling management techniques, and know to ensure that the anger is doing the kind of work that we want it to do. And that's why before that chapter, I talk about white allies and how even with their loyalty and rage, um, they can also, how they can distinctively go awry. We are human. We're frail. We can, us meeting up with the emotions, it can go awry. So how can we make sure that we stay in check so that the emotion can do what it wants to do? So I, that, that's, that's simply what I mean by, by that. Going to your first question, it leads us to this notion of there's been recent um, work that has been written. A, a 2016 book came out um, called Anger and Forgiveness by a philosopher by the name of Martha Nussbaum. And she's highly critical of anger in ways that I am not. And the only anger that she offers up as, as something that is wonderful is the anger that she calls transition anger. Now, mind you, this is not the kind of anger that I'm defending. She calls it transition anger because she says, and she thinks Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech is a perfect example of transition anger, in which, on her account, Martin Luther King starts out the speech kind of angry, and then he transitions out of it. Ah, got it. Okay, it. okay. Go ahead and teach us. Yeah, preach, preacher. Go ahead and preach. <laughs> that anger transitions out to generosity and love, and so that he can imagine, you know, a, a different world in which, you know, man is not judged by the content of his skin, but by, you know, his, I mean, his, his, his content of his character, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And what I want to say is, hold up. Hold up. Why do we need to transition out of anger, right? One of the things I want to say, and one of the things that I argue in the book, and this is something that you just mentioned a few minutes ago, is that the kind of anger that I'm talking about is not intention with love. It's not intention with generosity. It's very much compatible with so-called positive emotions like compassion, right? So, so you know, and, and I mean, the kind, of love, the kind of anger that I'm talking about I mean, not only is it directed towards racism and aims for radical transformation, and it's, it has a very inclusive perspective, but it, it focuses on valuing the lives of the marginalized. As we talked about before, it advertises justice as worth. Um, it motivates people to engage in productive action. By one having it, one is able to resist certain kind of racial rules that exist in society, right? It has these particular features. And, and given that it has these particular features, right, it, 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 it has to have love as part of the component, right? Right. So there's no way that I can stand up for the marginalized if I don't love these folks. There's no, there's no way that I can express anger at their mistreatment and not feel compassion towards them. That's because anger is compatible with compassion, right? It's no way in the world that African-Americans have not burned this much down because anger is an expression of generosity and patience, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So as opposed to us thinking that the anger is the antithesis of these other so-called positive emotions, I think it's ludicrous, 
It's not backed up by empirical evidence. When I think about Martin Luther King, I see an angry man and I see a loving man. When I think about James Baldwin, I see an angry man and I see a loving man. When I think about Ida B. Wells, I do Lord, et cetera, et cetera. These were individuals who not only were angry, but they had these other kinds of emotions. And it's because they were all working in, in tandem together. We're able to get the freedom that we have gotten or the kind of political work um, and contributions that we have gotten because these emotions are not incompatible. They're very much compatible with each other. Um, so you can be angry and be loving and be compassionate and be generous. How has um how has you know I wrote a book I went on this I went on a tour all over the place blah 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 and uh, it was always so interesting because as you know when you put the book out like it is no longer just yours right like it other people take it and use <laughs> it and they have ideas and da 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 uh, is there anything from the book being out in the world that uh, that you that has been notable for you like either people's responses or like somebody's push that you were like oh interesting or like somebody received it in the way that you intended or like, I don't know, I'm so interested in that because it is such a hard process to write something and such a such a vulnerable thing to actually let it go, to be printed and put out in the world. And uh, and only people who have gone through the process, I think, really understand it. Right, right. I mean, one of the things that I noticed, so one of the things that I said in, in writing this book, I said, listen, this book is going to be a love letter for the outrage, right? For those who are angry and trying to figure out I don't want to let this go, but I need to figure out what's up with it. I wrote this for them. Um, for those who, whether that's through religious tradition or cultural tradition, have been taught to suppress or repress their anger um, and feel shame about it, I'm talking to them. For those who are trying to figure out, okay, how can I use this in a productive way, um, I'm talking to them. But I've also wrote it for those who have been highly critical of anger in general, and hopefully that this will give them less things to be critical, critical about. What is interesting has been that latter part. So I noticed that, I mean, the, type, the title of the book is The Case for Rage, right? Um, and so I think people are so, I mean, people have this long tradition of having certain kinds of feelings in relationship to anger. That just the title alone has been reasons for them to discount the whole argument. <laughs> so I've seen, for example, so I've seen on Twitter someone recently, oh, I just finished this book. It was, it was great. <laughs> Someone will respond, well, I still think that anger is destructive, right? So that, 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 that tendency, that, that, that kind of automatic tendency to still hold on to this idea that anger is just awful has been their immediate response. Um, that has been interesting to me, right? Because what I want them to do is to read the book, but their immediate, their immediate response just confirms why this book to me is so important and why it needs to be, why it needs to be in the world. So if any confirmation I've, I, I've gotten is it, it allowed me to know that I'm on track. As much as I thought that this book is late, quote unquote, um, like I said, I've been thinking about it for the last nine years. It, it has been a reminder to me that there are still people who need to hear the argument. <laughs> There's still minds that need to be changed on this. And I'm glad, as a result of that, I'm glad that this book is out, out in the world. And I just want people to read it. Um, I just want people to read it and hopefully I'll begin to change some, 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 some Twitter some Twitter minds. Um, so that's been the most interesting thing, that commitment to, oh, rage, wow, awful, get it away. I'm just hearing it and um, has set off uh, some, some threads on Twitter. And that's been quite interesting. Boom. Can you uh, tell us the title of the book and where people can get it? The title of the book is called The Case for Rage, Why Anger is Essential to Anti-Racist Struggle. And you can get it anywhere 
that books are sold, but particularly independent bookstores. What's yeah, oh, there are two questions we ask everybody. The first is, what's a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that stuck with you? Mm, a piece of advice that I've gotten over the years. I got a lot of advice. Recently, I got some bad advice. <laughs> <laughs> Don't share the bad advice. We, tr- we, we a teaching uh, podcast, Miss uh, <laughs> Professor Cherry. Nah, man. Nah, man. Nah, I want to nah, nah, keep the friendships I have. I mean, so, so I would say this. I would say this. And it's probably a cliche advice. Um, but be you. That has always stuck with me. Um, I've always been, quote, unquote, different. Um, and, I mean, we have our, our growing phases. And, and I, I think I'm at a point in my life where I am 100% happy and comfortable that I'm me. And recognizing that there are a lot of people that probably still won't accept that. Or won't be down with that, uh, but recognizing that being me doesn't mean that I'm for everybody. Um, but I think the freedom of just being myself and being authentic and true to myself has been liberating and um, has been freeing. And uh, that's just advice that I just tremendously believe in. The joys and the freedom of being you has been liberating for me. Boom. Uh, and the last question is, there are a lot of people who feel like they've done all the things, right? They called, they emailed, they testified, they read your book, they read mine, they stood in the street, they tried to pass the law. All the things in the world has not changed in the way they wanted to. What do you say to those people? I would say, listen, more progress adds and flows. I mean, and I'm saying more progress and we're scarecrows here. It adds and flows. Right. And once we accept that, listen, we're not moving towards a utopian society. Freedom is a constant struggle. Even when we work very, very hard, we're not going to get the perfect results that we want. But we have to, you know, kind of recognize that when you sign up for this work, I mean, we sign up for a perpetual struggle. Not many victories here and now and then. It's perpetual struggle. To get real freedom is perpetual struggle. And although we may not get the wins that we want, there's always wins along the way. And if we discount those, we are disrespecting those who come before us. Um, we're being ungrateful uh, to the wins that we've already gotten. But I think we owe it to ourselves, to each other, to keep, to keep fighting. Because just because you don't get what you want to get doesn't necessarily mean that you didn't get something. And that something is always worth fighting for. That something is always important it's always a game so don't 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 go into despair because races are not despairing <laughs> don't go into you know nihilism because the powers that be are not nihilistic but i'm also saying not not to be hopeful i'm just saying to continue to struggle that's the work well we consider your friend of the pie can't wait to have you back can you tell everybody where they can go to stay up to date with your work and to follow you well i'm on social media on all the things maisha cherry and also my website, MaishaCherry.org. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning into Pod of the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we will see you next week. Positive the People is a production of Crooked Media. It's produced by AJ Moultre and mixed by Charlotte Lands. Executive produced by me and special thanks to our weekly contributors, Kai Henderson, D.R. Ballinger, and Miles Johnson.
For years, I just dreaded going to the dentist. But at Advanced Dentistry, I don't have to. First and foremost, they want you to feel comfortable when you walk in. Like, you'll feel it. Whereas in the past, I might have gone into the dentist and thinking, I might feel some pain at some point. But with IV sedation, it can be something that you don't dread. If you've been avoiding the dentist because of fear, worry, or just not wanting to be judged, you're not alone. Visit NoFearDentist.com to learn how IV sedation can change your life. Wherever the road may take you, Discount Tire and Continental Tire get you there safely with the perfect combination of style, comfort, and price. Get a set of Continental Tires at your local Discount Tire store or online at DiscountTire.com. Discount Tire, let's get you taken care of.